Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome and welcome. And if you remember how that works, if I say it twice, I mean I have two guests today. Welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place because this is where the best run. Just let that sink in. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from a lady named Teresa Dominic. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, D-O-M-E-N-E-C-H. She is a senior teaching fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Resources, has all kinds of academic degrees, expertise in industrial engineering, ecological engineering, and environmental engineering. I think she covers the engineering landscape. Here's the quote. Listen carefully. We will design products differently if we knew that those products were going to come back to us as manufacturers and we could extract value from them and create new products from them. Think about this. Think about this. She's talking about something going around in a circle. Isn't that interesting? And that's what we're talking about today. Let me give you a little historical look back. The last 150 years of our industrial evolution, I didn't say revolution because we've had many of those, have been dominated by a one-way linear economy model. What does this mean? We produce, we consume. We manufacture goods from raw materials. We sell them, we use them, we throw them away or we incinerate them at waste. Bada bing, gone. We used to call it built-in obsolescence. Uh Uh-uh, not working so well anymore. We're looking for sustainability. How to get past this? Well, welcome to the circular economy, a model that maintains products, extends their service life, and repurposes the waste from one product to maintain another product. We call this reuse, repair, remanufacture. And for those of you who think this is woo-woo, I have to tell you the drivers for the circular economy have very little to do with hugging trees. And that's a quote from one of our panelists today, Chris Kotcha. We'll be talking to him in a few minutes. Is your company on board yet? Are you on board yet? Let me tell you who my two experts are. We only needed two because they're so incredibly smart on this topic. I'm welcoming them back because they joined me on Game Changing Conversations Radio just a few weeks ago, actually, in May, May 8th, 2018, to be specific. And let's see who they are. First up, Chris Koch is coming back, Director of Thought Leadership for the SAP Center for Business Insight. And joining him is another colleague, Will Ritzrau. I'll spell that R-I-T-Z-R-A-U, Director of Sustainability at SAP. Welcome back to both of you. And Chris, I love that not hugging trees statement. Uh, Let me read the quote you sent me for the opening of the show today. This is a good one. Say something once, why say it again? And if anybody's wondering where that comes from, think about the song called Psycho Killer. It's from the 1977 album Talking Head 77. It is possibly the best known Talking Head song and it made number 99 on the Billboard singles chart. And let's see, the song is about the thoughts of a serial killer inspired by Norman Bates and the movie Psycho. Let me just read that part of the lyric, Chris, before you talk. The lyrics go, you start a conversation, you can't even finish it. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. When I have nothing to say, my lips are sealed. Say something once, why say it again? Chris Koch, thank you for introducing me to Talking Heads. How are you? Good. How are you doing? 
I'm fine. I'm hoping you're not calling me a talking head, but that's probably what some people would say I do. (laughs) Are you a big fan? Did you know this is their best-known album or song? Oh, yes. I love the talking heads, and uh, I love the irony of that, of of those lyrics, because, and I, I thought it was applicable to the show today, because, you know, if, for example, if I said to my wife once that I love you, Um, I don't think we'd be approaching our 30th wedding anniversary. (laughs) And I think you can apply the same logic to business, especially when we're talking about the circular economy, sustainability, and renewability. This is a subject that is taboo. Mm. And it's because... Wait, 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 wait. Why? Chris, why is it taboo? It's because people associate it with tree hugging and and all the political baggage that comes with that but what has actually ha- happened over the past let's say 30 years and or or more since uh, that song came out is that this has actually become an issue of efficiency so sustainability and efficiency are absolutely aligned and companies need to be talking about this more and not less and will uh, will can back that up with his experience with uh, with customers over the years. So sustainability is about profit, period. And we need to ha- be having that discussion much more often. Um, and the fear is that uh, companies say to themselves, well, you know, I can't change everything. So therefore, I shouldn't say anything. And that's absolutely wrong because the more we talk about how companies are gaining business efficiency and profitability from these actions, not just PR, um, the better off everyone is going to be because we are, we are in, in quite a bit of danger as Will is going to uh, inform you in a couple minutes. Thank you, Chris. Interesting. Uh, a little scary what you said. You know, we saw on a home basis, I would say, what, in the past 10 years when we were told to buy eco-friendly products for our cleaning in our homes, right, right, Chris? Uh, we were told to not use certain aerosols. We were told to, with, with certain propellants in them, we were told about the ozone layer. We were told we were going to change the climate. We were told we were going to destroy this layer and that layer. But we weren't told about reusing recycling. And, and does my statement in the opening, Chris, about built-in obsolescence, does that ring true with you? If you've been married 30 years, you probably have owned a couple of washers and dryers along the way. Uh, what do you think? Absolutely. That was, that was not a consideration in the economic model, unfortunately, you know, during, during development of the industrial evolution, as you call it. But now it is a necessary component uh, because it is profitable. The idea was uh, we throw it out. We don't worry about what happens because the cost of, of uh, retaining products was a cost that neither companies nor consumers were willing to bear. And government uh, regulation was not doing the trick. But that whole, that whole situation has changed. And that word needs to get out there more. 
Good. Well, that's why we're here talking about it. Chris, pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you for joining me. And now let's, we've, we've been uh, summoning Will for a couple of minutes now. You keep mentioning Will will say this and Will will say that. And yes, Will will. So Will Ritzrow is with us again. And Will has sent us a quote from Sir Ernest Shackleton. And Will, I know you're familiar with Brad Borkin, who also works at SAP, one of our colleagues. Uh, he produces a show. Well, he, he provides the editorial content and the guests for a show called The Future of the Future with Game Changers and a series underneath that title is uh, Changing the Game with Purpose or Game Changers with Purpose. And he is a student of Antarctic explorers and actually wrote a book about extreme decision-making. So when I saw that you were quoting Sir Ernest Shackleton, I told you about Brad and turns out that you already know who he is. So here is the quote. By the way, Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton, lots of letters after his name, lived from 1874 to 1922, was a polar explorer who led three British expeditions to the Antarctic, and he was one of the principal figures of what's called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. He was, I have a quick quote here, Will, if you'll permit me, uh, in his 1956 address to the British Association, Sir Raymond Priestley, one of Shackleton's contemporaries, said, Scott, another explorer for scientific method, Amundsen, another explorer for speed and efficiency. When, when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. So he was very, very respected. I thought that was a great quote. Here's the quote Will has selected from Sir Ernest Shackleton. Difficulties are just things to overcome, after all. Okay, Will, how have you been? I'm great, Bonnie, and, and thanks for having me back on the show. Well, so, uh, I'm delighted to have you and Chris back because the first show we did in May on the other series about circular economy was so compelling. I learned so much. I wanted to bring the two of you and your wisdom and expertise to our larger audience on Coffee Break, and that's why you're here. So talk to me about Shackleton and the quote. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I was in Antarctica earlier this year, and if you've experienced this rough environment in the in the Antarctic summer, it's, it's already... Tough, but if you imagine you you would be frozen in for 500 days, uh, so one and a half years uh, in that environment, and bring back all your people. That was his purpose. So he said at some point in time and space, nobody of my expedition will die, right? And and mm-hmm. and that was is very impressive. And I heard another quote uh, similar to what you just said. If you want to be successful. You should go with Amundsen. If you want to, if you want everything being planned, go with Scott. And if you want to survive, go with Shackleton. Right? That's similar <laughs> to what you said. And That's I right. think uh, we're we're coming to a point where we're we're kind of facing these difficulties. Uh, uh, Chris was already saying that we have to change mindset and we have to take responsibility. And by the way, did you know that today, August 1, is the, the Global Overshoot Day? And uh, the no. Global Overshoot Day marks the date when we, so we as human beings uh, on this planet, have basically used more from nature than our planet can renew in the entire year. So everything which is grown so far, or what we consume in the, the remaining, what is it, four months, uh, is coming off uh, of the consumption uh, or the potential resources of our of our kids, right? 
So, and that shows you that uh, we have to think differently. We have to think differently how we, how we use the resources we have uh, within our planetary boundaries. Will, I just and looked that, that up. I, I just want to give yeah. you a side note here. Uh, I'm on Wikipedia. EOD, Earth Overshoot Day, also known as Ecological Debt Day, is the calculated illustrative calendar date on which humanity's resource consumption for the year exceeds Earth's capacity to regenerate those resources that year. Thank you for that. That's fascinating. Please continue. Yeah, and, and just imagine that this day moved or moved forward from the 70s when it was still in December, so we're basically living in the 70s where we would survive another year, it moved, every year it moves five, ten days forward, and now we're, we're already in, in August. Next year it's probably already in, in July. So we have to rethink how we, how we work with resources, not only the stuff we're digging out of the ground, but it's also the waste we're producing. For example, uh, CO2 or carbon, carbon dioxide, our climate... Uh, change gases is also waste. So we have to rethink uh, how we use our resources. And as, as Chris uh, elaborated, it, it's about good business. And good business is, uh, and I would actually extend what, what uh, Chris said, it's not about profit, but it is sustainable profit for the mid and long term. And it's securing the prosperity of the organization. Yeah, and, and that, is, that is where I think uh, circular economy will, will, will play a significant role because you're reducing risk, you're, you're working on your margin uh, for the mid and long term. Thank you very much, Will. I'm, I'm fascinated by this EOD. Never heard of it before, and I'm going to tweet this out. I think it's, it's important to share this information. Didn't know somebody was counting and calculating, and, and it certainly is scary. Will, let's just quickly get your thoughts on some of the things I talked to Chris about in terms of our consumer level of awareness of what we used to call eco-friendly, sustainability, our role. Is it our role as consumers to go to companies and say, we don't want obsolescence anymore. We want products. We want services that keep on extending the life of whatever we bought from you. Is that the job? Is it coming from the population? Is it coming from leaders? Where does the impetus for this come from? And, and Chris, I'm going to ask you the same question. Will, where's it coming from? I think it's a mutual thing. If, if on the one hand side, the very emotional topic around the world is currently plastics in the ocean, right? So that's mm-hmm. popping up everywhere, everywhere. And you see large, large brands like Starbucks, like, uh, like Marriott, like uh, uh, Royal Caribbean, various airlines are, are now banning uh, single-use plastics like straws in their, in their operations because they don't want to be associated with the plastics in the ocean, right? You have in, in Europe, you have uh, bans and taxations in China, Single-use plastic bags are uh, China and India. They, they, they are banned. And on mm. the other side, I think, uh, I think, uh, as a consumer, uh, companies have realized that they can differentiate uh, through the non-obsolescence. Let's turn it around. And mm-hmm. uh, if you, uh, for example, look at Adidas. Adidas just brought out a shoe which is produced from uh, oceanic uh, plastic waste. And, uh, and people say it's the best sneaker or running shoe they have ever used. And, and, and you can use it 
uh, uh, with c- good conscience because it's based on recycled and reused material, cleaning up shores and, and uh, being recycled and producing a new shoe, right? So companies mm-hmm. realize that a secondary raw materials from recycling, uh, sometimes they are less expensive, right? They're accessible. And mm-hmm. on the other side, they can also actually increase their brand reputation and differentiate their products from uh, the non-sustainable ways, let's put it this way. Yeah, and it has to be an appealing message probably at multiple levels. Chris Koch, love to get your thoughts on this. What do you think the message has to be to consumers to say demand products that can be recycled, reused, repurposed? Is it coming from consumers? What do you see? Or from the manufacturers themselves? And, And I think one of you said, Circular economy is profitability for a company. So what's your thought on that, Chris? I would simply ask leaders of companies a very simple question. Uh, would you like to have 3% more margin? Yes or mm. no? What do you think their answer would be? Yes. It's yes, right? No kidding. Well, uh, uh, Nielsen's most recent global corporate sustainability report found that brands associated with sustainability grew 3% more in one year than the rest of the field, period. So, you know, this is a business question. It it, it doesn't matter really where it's coming from. It's simply that, uh, you know, between the efficiencies that we now have through technological means to make the supply chain more sustainable, and we can get into that in more detail, Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, a, a truly a growing awareness among consumers and demand, uh, not simply for sustainability, but for safety, right? Because the two are linked together. And uh, yeah. I'll give you another statistic that, that clarifies what I mean here. 2017, according to the World Meteorolog- Meteorological Organization, said that uh, we are entering, quote-unquote, uncharted territory. So... 2017 was the most expensive year on record for severe weather and climate events. People are getting hurt. Their property is being damaged. Homes are being lost. Uh, Coastal towns in Florida, uh, people have had to leave their homes, their their entire life investment. Um, So, yes, consumers are, are demanding this, but businesses can benefit. It's not simply doing good. It's simply doing the right thing by your uh, investors and by your customers. Very, very interesting. You know, Chris, when we buy many of our products, and I like probably you and Will and, and thousands of others, millions of others, buy a lot of things online. It's easy. They come delivered to the door. Some of them require setup. That's another story. But very often... Have you ever bought anything online, a piece of furniture or something, an appliance that doesn't say, would you like to buy a two-year warranty or extended warranty or a guarantee that will fix it for nothing? And I, like probably many consumers, will weigh the value of what I'm paying for the object versus the cost of this quote-unquote extended warranty, which comes with its own paperwork, and you have to file it, and you have to know where you put the file or you put the paperwork, and who do you contact. So very often I'll say, 
and I, forgive me for this, Chris and Will are going to not like me for this. I'll say sometimes, if it breaks, it breaks, I'll throw it out. I'll put it in the recycle, of course, recycle bin, but I'll throw it out. Why should I bother? I just paid, you know, if it's under 50 bucks, why bother? So is that something that is hurting the adoption of the circular economy? Uh, first, Chris, and then Will, what do you think? You can tell me I'm not being good about this. Go ahead, Chris. So, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you, I think, because people have this expectation of planned obsolescence. But there, there is a growing phenomenon. Actually, it's been growing for quite a long time uh, in which uh, consumers are actually brought into the loop and are informed about the, the, uh, the idea that their products are designed for renewability, for sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this actually goes back to, uh, we can trace it back as far as post-war France. So uh, just after the war, you know, uh, many areas of northern France were, were, were bombed. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, economic uh, uncertainty and uh, people were really struggling. And it was difficult for them to buy cars. And uh, one of the uh, French car companies, Renault, came up with the idea of offering customers refurbished parts. Mm-hmm. And so you could uh, you could say you could go into the garage and you could say um, you could, the, the mechanic would say to you, "I can either give you a brand new transmission or I can give you one that's been." Uh, recycled for half the price. And this is 1949 we're talking about. Mm. And so if you change the, the conversation to something like that, and the mechanic also says, and by the way, this transmission works just as well as the new one, and it has the same guarantee as the new one, then what's your answer to that question? I think it would be different. So uh, and Will can speak to this directly. You know, at SAP, we have a philosophy of design thinking, which is it's a well-known uh, strategy, but this is something that, that companies need to apply to, to bring this into the mainstream, the idea that you're actually going to design from the ground up your product to be reused. And there are many instances where this has been done already, but it's not universal yet. Well, I would like to see that, actually, Chris. When I buy something, I would like to see help support the circular economy. We're all about reusing, repurposing, remanufacturing. That would get my attention. Completely, it would get my attention. Will, love to get your thoughts on this from the consumer point of view. What's going to help us get on board in addition to helping companies get on board? Well, you know, if I may, Bonnie, I would would like to... um have a, a few more sentences on, on leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, you, you may even recall the, the large advertisements of Patagonia in the early 2000s, don't buy this jacket, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, I think it was at bus stations, it was in, even in, in, the, in the New York Times. So Patagonia was, uh, uh, was actually advertising, saying don't buy this jacket, and in case you want to buy one, bring your old one back, we will recycle and reuse it. And they differentiated in, in the market of this outdoor clothing with this, with this approach. And uh, just guess what? They were the ones which came very clear and profitable out of the financial crisis in the 
period. Mm -hmm. Same is true, the leader of Ray Anderson of Interface. Interface is reusing, they're producing uh, floor tiles out of nylon, and you buy the, the floor, uh, the carpet, the tiles, and when, when you rip them out, they take them back and they recycle them. So they, they differentiate through these uh, reusable and circular business models, and they're very profitable uh, companies because, because they have leaders. They have true leaders in this field. Now, coming back to your throw-out mentality, now mm -hmm. let, me, let me paint a picture for you. If talking about an appliance, let's talk about a laundry machine, right? So yeah. you're saying, well, it's, I don't know, it's 200 bucks, and if it doesn't work after three years, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out. Yeah. Can you imagine that you would buy, uh, instead of buying the appliance, could you uh, imagine to buy uh, clean clothes? And <laughs> I mean this uh, in, a, in a way that, yeah. well, yeah. seriously, not new clean clothes, but washed clean clothes. Yeah. Uh, and I mean it in a way that you have, an, you have a smart home appliance and, and you're paying, in your case, it probably would be Whirlpool or if you want to go high-end, it would be Miele. Uh, and you're paying per washing or mm -hmm. per kilo washing. Okay. This is a new, this is a new business model, right? Yes. And it, it increases the customer loyalty to Miele that's on the one hand side, they know exactly what you need. They know exactly uh, how much detergents you need, how much water you need. You could say, okay, I get eco washing, I get whatever, right? So you are very loyal to this company and yeah. the next one will be a meal again. Now, why is this a sustainability case? This business model of from product to performance uh, is exactly the opposite of obsolescence. Because the interest of Miele will be they want to sweat the asset, right? So mm -hmm. they will build and, and use materials which are long-lasting because at some point there will be the break-even point of that asset and they will basically print money with, with each washing, right? Yes. And you will, if, if they service the machine right, they will service it in a way that it always runs in the optimal performance area. So it will use the least water, it will use the least energy, it will use the least detergent because you're paying for the outcome, right? And that is true, and, and that's just a different thinking. And for you, it's very convenient because you don't have to take care of that thing, right? And that is true what you're seeing all over the place. That's basically the underlying business model of Uber, right? Even though I don't like Uber because of how they treat their, their drivers, uh, the same is true for Airbnb. And more and more, at least in Germany, more and more kids say, I don't need a car. Why should I put an asset of 50,000 euros or 30,000 euros in front of my house and it's standing around for 99% of the time? I want convenient, intermodal, and, uh, and uh, inexpensive Mobility, independent of the mode, right? And I think that is, that is where at least the next generation thinks entirely different. And some of that thinking is, uh, is more towards uh, sustainability, conscious decisions, uh, and will help, uh, help us actually deal with, uh, with uh, resource scarcity. However, on the other side, there's a development of, uh, if you look at the garment industry, on average, uh, there's so much uh, clothing produced that we have 14 sets per year 
or 13 or 14 sets of of uh, garments, 14 per, per year. So that doesn't say anything about non-obsolescence. But you see, there is also a new... Yeah. But funny, it, go ahead, Chris. Well, Chris, go we ahead. can say that, that this is something for the future, but actually this has been going on for quite some time. So, you know, happening, yeah. Renault, why, why, did, why did Renault do that? Because it, it differentiated itself in a very competitive market. Uh, its, yeah. its main competitor, uh, Peugeot, did not offer these these uh, low cost parts. So the, the salesman could say, "You're going to save money on your car," and and that's a selling point for customers. But there's also a, a, an issue here with uh, uh, in the business to business supply chain. So if you go back to 1962, uh, Rolls Royce came up with the idea. They realized that that airplane maintenance was actually extremely complex, and the airlines, it, it, it's not their core competence to bring back a, a, an old uh, uh, stra- strategy term. They did, not, they did not want to do it. They weren't actually doing it very well, and so Rolls-Royce said, we are the engine experts. We'll own the engines, and uh, they offered a pay-by-the-mile uh, pay uh, uh, subscription and this is 1962, uh, and they've been doing that ever since with airlines, where the airlines simply, uh, you know, keep track of how the, uh, the the planes are being used and can focus on using them to their maximum potential, because they're not worried about them breaking down. Rolls Royce is uh, has in fact, uh, you know, upgraded this as time has gone on. The service gets better and better and better. And technology is now to the point where in some new uh, jets, they're putting sensors in so that they can do uh, predictive maintenance. So that before there's ever any problem with the engine, uh, they can warn their their repair people that, in fact, there's something that should be uh, addressed before there's any uh, uh, plane downtime so that the airline doesn't have to worry at all. And so this, you know, th- this serves the, the, the supply chain itself and businesses themselves. Uh, it makes their lives easier and makes, um, and, and makes their uh, supply chain simpler. Thank you both. I you know, Chris, I, 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 I'm yeah, always ahead, ner- nervous when I see a guy, when I see a guy crawling into the turbine with a hammer, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Especially when you're already belted into your seat well, right? right. That's yeah, when you exactly. get that's when you yeah. get nervous. Listen, what I want to do, we're, we're going to skip the break. There's just no time for a break today. There's too much to talk about, too much good conversation. We've broken the mold a little bit here. I just had so many things I wanted to talk to you about instead of just going through the statements. But what I'd like to do right now, because this is Coffee Break with Game Changers, is find out where each of of you are right now Chris Koch what city or town are you in what either what do you have in front of you because I know you're very powerful today do you have a cup of something interesting or would you like to tell us your favorite drink in the whole wide world that quote unquote sustains you to be as smart yeah. as you are and let's do that and then I'll ask Will the same question and then we'll keep diving into the topic go ahead Chris I am in the beautiful town of Brookline Massachusetts which is just Two miles outside of Boston, uh, and, uh, which is uh, a very beautiful city, as many of you probably know. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about one of my favorite drinks. Um, 
so we all know what, and, and Will is from Germany, so he knows what the beverage that Germany is, is very well known for, right? That would be beer. But uh, Germany also produces, as many people know, some excellent wines. Um, however, that's not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, someone in Germany discovered that uh, <laughs> there's an excellent wine from the region, and, and Will can correct my pronunciation, the, from the river Saar, S-A-A-R. Uh, it's a delicious yep. white wine, and decided, why don't we put some of that in some gin? And they came <laughs> up with something called Ferdinand's Gin, which is absolutely extraordinary. Um because of that little bit of wine, it, it, it gives it, uh, there's also many, many botanicals in this gin, which is uh, unlike the normal sort of London dry gin, which is very, uh, has a very strong alcohol taste. This is, has taste of flowers. It has taste of, of uh, the usual juniper, pine notes, but it also has this lovely touch of wine in it. And, it uh, on a summer's evening, uh, a martini made with this is uh, is delightful. And Chris, I have to tell you that I just looked up Ferdinand's gin, and I had to sign a statement saying I'm over eighteen, old enough to go on their website. <laughs> I always always laugh when I see that. I don't know who they're protecting, but I'm sure it's somebody. I'm fine. And what I found here was Sar S A A R gin, Sar dry gin, a chiefer riesling infused, owes its name to the Royal Prussian District Forester Ferdinand Geltz, the historical figure who co-founded the VDP Moselle Sar Ruhr. Growers Group, and let me just read a second here. It says, carefully handpicked Riesling grapes from the steep shale slopes, that's not easy to pronounce, of the Zillikin Estate on the Grand Saarburger Rausch site. Make our gin a unique taste experience. The craftsman of our master distiller, Andreas Valendar, and over 30 finely balanced botanicals taken from the vineyards and our own cultivation guarantee a high-quality product from the Saar region that promises supreme drinking pleasure is that the right one chris that's the one okay ferdinand's sar s-a-a-r dry gin it's got a beautiful fancy label on it thank you very much for introducing us to a new drink i didn't think it was possible after what uh 1200 shows and about six thousand guests in seven years and you brought me a new drink thank you chris now will there's no pressure on you but where are you today and what do you love to drink well, yeah, I'm I'm still in Heidelberg, uh, 200 kilometers south of Frankfurt in the Rhine Valley, which is fairly close to to the Saar area. Uh, Chris is uh, Chris is uh, uh, enjoying in his in in his gin, but today I have to be honest. Uh, you know, I have a simple what is called my spritz, and it's an alcohol-free mixture of apple juice and uh, sparkling mineral water. We have uh, almost 100, deg- 100 degrees Fahrenheit here, even in the office. So I just need uh, some isotonic stuff uh, to survive the day. I know it's boring. It's boring. It's nothing new for you. But, you know, I had the rum punch on the ice last time. So I thought <laughs> I could stick with some simple, oh. honest, uh, refreshing stuff today. 
It's okay. Thank you very much. And we'll talk about boring. I'm still drinking a mug of cool, clear water, but I did change, wash the mug and, and did uh, change the water in your honor, Will. And that's all they let me have. I'm not allowed to have anything with caffeine or stronger on radio show days. And you too know why. So what I want to talk about now, and thank you both, a little bit about how the circular economy got started. I don't think we covered that yet on today's show, but we did on part one. So I have this information from you, Chris Koch. You say the circular economy first started in 1972 in an industrial park in a little coast city in Denmark called Kalendborg. You say it was pure luck, no planning. No environmental edicts, no government interference. Just like anything else in business, it was about profit. Can you give us that little story, please, Chris Kutch? Yes. Yeah, so uh, there's uh, there, and this industrial park is still there today. Um, there was uh, a, an interesting uh, uh, clash of luck, I would say, between two companies, where. Um, a, an oil refinery had excess gas, and uh, these the owners of these businesses um, know each other. Um, there, there's a you know a society there in Denmark that promotes the town promotes uh, the you know the business culture, getting you know the, the owners of the various companies to get to know one another. And these two companies said, "Well, I've got this excess gas, and another company that uh, happened to make." Um, uh, Wallboard said, well, we'd be happy to take that. And since they were proximate to each other, they simply built a pipe and they started using that ga- that excess gas to for, uh, for their own uh, manufacturing process. And that has grown since then. The other companies took uh, in the area took note and um, one really interesting phenomenon was that um, when there's a cold fire, cold fire, coal fired nuclear, uh, sorry, coal fired power plant there, and when they installed a scrubber in the uh, in the uh, uh, smokestacks to uh, reduce pollution, it in fact one of the byproducts was the core product that you use gypsum for for making these wall boards that the company there makes so rather than import this stuff from spain they took it from their next door neighbor so you know this these are the kinds of efficiencies that if companies are thinking about this and they are uh, they, they can develop trust with one another there are all sorts of possibilities and actually uh technology has really extended those possibilities um in the beginning, I would say back in 72, this, this was not that viable, you know, unless you were located right next to each other. Because, you know, why make a gas pipeline that extends, let's say, from Spain to, to uh, Denmark? But with uh, things like blockchain um, and other technologies, you can, you can shorten that distance virtually. And I'll just give you an example. Um, Today, for example, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about how um, uh, a company, uh, Gerber, is uh, setting up uh, its food supply chain on blockchain so that it can be able to report um, any food food problems within the supply chain much more quickly and have its suppliers connected. 
And these suppliers are all over the world. Um, and this is the kind of thing that, that, and many other companies are doing this as well, Walmart, uh, and, and there's a consortium of nine different companies that are creating this for the food industry so that they can avoid these uh, uh, incidents such as we had with, uh, with the lettuce recently where people were getting mm-hmm. poisoned by it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it makes the, the entire system more efficient and enables you to spot vendors who are handling things in an unhealthy fashion, uh, an inefficient fashion. And this yes. is what's going on. This is the evolution that's occurred since 1972. Very interesting. I found the news article Farm to, in CIO Journal on uh, Wall Street Journal blogs, Farm to Cradle. Nestle experiments yeah. with tracking Gerber baby food on the blockchain. Nestle joins nine other food giants in an industry-wide food traceability effort, and they say it's putting some of its Gerber baby food products on a food tracking blockchain to test whether the technology can trace the fruits and vegetables that go into its purees and squeezable pouches, uh, aimed at improving food recalls by using the technology behind Bitcoin, that's blockchain, to trace a worldwide ingredient supply chain. Food recalls diminish consumer confidence and lead to lost sales. Of course, news of tainted baby food hits an especially sensitive nerve, and that's why they want to do it. They want to generate customer trust every day, and especially during any recalls. Very interesting. So trust is the operative word there. Fascinating. Will, any comments about uh, the little company in Denmark or about Nestle and Gerber? using blockchain? Actually, yes, yes. And the interesting thing is that uh, I think it was roughly 10 years ago we had a discussion with the head of, uh, of agricultural procurement with, with Nestle where we said, uh, can't we use a cloud solution to, uh, to help you track and trace uh, your product? And we said it needs to be an emotional product, like uh, in, in Europe, it's Alete. So it's not the Gerber brand, but it's Alete, right? And at that time, he said, you know, as, mu- as much as I would like it, but I wouldn't get the business case through my marketing department. They're not interested in this stuff, right? So this is, this is mm-hmm. what, what Chris already alluded to, is the world is changing and people are changing. More and more people are concerned about what, what they eat, and the nice thing is that there is inexpensive and simple technology to actually enable this transparency, building the trust you as a consumer want to have into the products you consume. That's the one side. So it's, it's the trust of the consumer into, into the products they eat, and for the producer, Nestle, it's risk avoidance. Right? It's risk avoidance in terms of brand reputation or actually liabilities in case there is a poisoning. Now, I would like to add another angle on this stuff is just think about the future will be 9 billion people by 2050. So we need roughly combined with the changing dietary habits, we, we probably need roughly 70% more food than we produce today. We have climate change going on, arable Land is, uh, the area of arable land is, is reducing, yet we're losing roughly 30% of food post-harvest as food waste. And technology can help to actually reduce the food waste. Just imagine to have 
30% more food available. Not only in terms of what that means in terms of food prices, but also how many more people you could actually feed. So technology can also help by, by matching supply and demand or demand and supply for some, some of the, the, food, the foods we produce uh, in, a very, in, a, in a very smart way. So we avoid the waste, again, which is a cost factor for both sides. The consumer, we're paying for, for the food waste. Uh, indirectly and directly for the producer, right? And it's just waste. It's it's waste, and we should not afford or we should not think about uh, wasting food. Thank you very much. This is absolutely fascinating. I'm looking through the notes both of you sent me, and thank you for so much good good information here. Um, I want to talk about. Let's see. Let's talk about regulation. Um, I'm looking at your notes, Will, and you say regulation is for laggards. Thought leaders innovate and grasp the opportunity. So is the implication here that if a company needs to be told to adopt the circular economy because the government said so or the city or whatever local or state or federal or international body has has edicted it, I don't know if that's even a verb, uh, they're way behind the curve. They're definitely not at the forefront. Are they going to lose out or is it just, oh, well, at least they're doing it at last? What's your thought, Will? Well, I put this in that regulation is for laggards because I truly believe that the leaders like Patagonia, like Interface, like some of, of uh, the big organizations in the world, they're using circular and, and they're using resource efficiency uh, already to be a thought leader and ahead of the pack. And maybe that's my personal opinion is regulation in many cases is the least the least common denominator of many lobby groups, right? So regulation is at least in the in, in the democratic countries, it's it's pushed out, right? It's pushed out, and uh, it will hit when you know almost everybody says, "Okay, we got to do it." So mm-hmm. I think that at least in in the emerging in the in, in the developed countries, uh, thought leaders actually do it. They just do it. Uh, we have discussions with company where they say. Uh, what is the best value I can create from a ton of oil? Is it just burning it? Or should we use it to produce poly- polycarbonates for, uh, for, uh, for lenses, right? Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's the bigger value, right? Uh, it's slightly different if you look at China. I mean, if you, if you look at their five-year plan, that is very strict regulation, that's very strict regulation in terms of only electric uh, uh, scooters in the cities, uh, X quota of electrical vehicles on the streets, and they execute on this stuff. But I think in the in the free markets, uh, in the free economies, uh, regulation is basically the last straw. If we if we take this this uh, picture, it's the last straw to to move things. And I, I think Thank it, you. it should be yep. incentivizing, right? Regulation it, should it be should. incentivizing. Yeah, and, and not, I think in, in, so in, uh, in Sweden, in Sweden mm-hmm. they are going after incentivizing lower tax rates for recycled parts. That's, that's the smart regulation, I think. Uh, Chris Koch, love to get your thoughts on this. Regulation, laggards, impediments to progress, whether my thought of, well, at least they're doing it at last, even if it took a regulation versus the avant-garde, the leaders. What, what's your thought? 
Uh, I agree completely with Will on um, regulation. I just don't think it's going to happen until it's too late. Um, and I agree with the, you know, the, the sort of positive incentives that you see in Sweden. I think one voice that we haven't heard from, but which is uh, very strong in this regard, is is uh, employees. Um, mm. You know, if, if if you look at decades of research, you'll see that motivated employees are more productive, are more satisfied with their work, and they're more likely to remain at their jobs. And so. Uh, particularly millennials and Generation Z are telling researchers that uh, money matters less to them than meaningful work. Um, and according to the Harvard Business Review, the single most important thing that companies can do right now to retain these younger workers is to, quote, create a deeply compelling vision of what the company or team is contributing to society. So this gets back to the point that Will was making about leadership. And uh, this is what consumers and, and uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, politicians should be doing more of, which is um, having discussions with business leaders and vice versa about how this matters, not just to consumers, not just to your customers. Um, it won't mm. simply make your supply chain more efficient and more profitable. It's going to keep your employees. and. We are hearing, uh, you know, we have very low unemployment rates right now in, in mm -hmm. many countries, not all, but, uh, you know, keep hanging on to employees is, is, is very expensive. You know, getting new ones is, costs much more than retaining them. So why not do the right thing? Why not be a leader who does the right thing? It Absolutely. seems very simple to me. And you know what? That we could apply that, Chris, on a human basis. Why throw throw away your experienced employees? Reuse them, repurpose them, recycle them. Keep the knowledge around, right? Very it's almost well a, put. Thank you. It's almost a yeah. gray matters kind of a thing. I had a friend in New York who passed away a few years ago. He was one of my clients when I was doing consulting, and, and he talked about putting together, he may have done this, a uh, an agency or a service bureau, if you will, where people who had been downsized, laid off, or had retired from corporate life who were at a certain senior level of executiveness, executiveship, were available as advisors to companies that needed their expertise and could go back in on a consulting basis to the workforce. I'm sure it's very popularly done. Will, I heard you in the background. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I have to tell both of you we're at the crystal ball predictions round, but let's not look into the crystal ball yet. Yes, I keep recycling the same one and it's still sparkly and shiny. So, um, Will, why don't you finish your thought and then I'll let you start and I'll give you whatever. I think you could have 60 seconds after a brief thought to finish that conversation, 60 seconds for your prediction. Let's say if you and Chris and I met again, and I know we will, I think there's a part three in our future guys so just get over it if we met again in 2020 and had another discussion on this what would we be talking about will ritzrail you're up first go uh, in 2020 i i would say that the recycling rates for for many uh, materials will go up significantly some of the stuff will be recycled 100 percent People will think about uh, upcycling and reusing and uh, avoid obsolescence. However, uh, no, in hindsight, we have changed education. We have changed education in the classical economics from educating kids in terms of silo optimization, optimization for the short, short term 
towards collaborative, trustful collaboration for value creation along the entire value chain. And back. And back. Thank you very much. And I, I did interrupt you. Is there anything you wanted to finish out that thought? We were talking, I don't know, we were talking about no, uh, just, getting... Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, the people, uh, uh, as Chris was, uh, was uh, talking about, this was actually how we made sustainability relevant to the executive board of SAP because one percentage point in uh, employee retention results in 55 to 50, 65 million uh, benefit, financial benefit of on, our, on our uh, operative result. So all of a sudden we changed social performance into monetary performance and that was, uh, that was basically an aha uh, moment for our, our leadership. I just wanted to strengthen uh, what Chris Thank said you. about the, the people. People's Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted you to get that in. And Chris Koch, I saved ooh, 90 seconds for you. You're so lucky today, Chris. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think uh, kind of building on what, what Will said, I think there's an increase in the movement to services uh, from products. Uh, so we talked about this before. But uh, think about Alexa and the uptake of Google Home and Alexa and how people are uh, essentially looking for a service. They, they are uh, shopping less and they are looking for uh, more efficiency. And uh, with the coming of artificial intelligence, which we already have, um, I can imagine in 2020 a consumer saying, Alexa, give me the most sustainable laundry detergent that is sold in any grocery store. Ooh. And Alexa will show that on your screen. And Ooh. that is a call. That should be a call to arms to anyone in the consumer products industry because AI can disintermediate your brand in a second. And if you are not yeah. keeping up with this revolution, I just say watch out because uh, people will be able to make buying decisions based on this and yeah. uh, without having to do any research on their own. Their AI yeah. will do it for them. The times, they are a-changing. I think I just recycled a Bob Dylan line from a song, actually. Chris Koch and Will Ritzrow, um, I'm going to ask you, we have just about two minutes left, and I'm not quite ready to finish. We want to get squeeze every drop of this time we can. Chris, uh, what's your favorite product in the circular economy? Is there anything you are very happy to own or know about? Just a, a one sentence. Anything you've talked about, some car manufacturers. We talked about washing machines, buy per load as a service. Anything quickly that you, you, you would uh, say that you love that's part of the circular economy? Well, uh Will's going to kill me because I, I, I love BMW as a German car. But uh, frankly, today I would buy a Renault because uh, Renaults are being designed from the ground up. If I could, they were sold in the U.S. Uh, they're being designed from the ground up for uh, renewability. As, I, as we talked about, this started in 1949. Thank you. The, I need to give, I need to give Will 10 seconds. Will, 10 sure. seconds for you, and then we got to go. Will, what's your favorite recyclable? I uh, I only buy when I really need stuff. My wife hates it, but, you know, I avoid. I avoid. I, I don't go into recycling. I, I just avoid buying new stuff as long as possible. 
There you go. Well, I will tell you, when I bought this house in Durham, North Carolina, 10 months ago, it had an ugly old washer and dryer in it that the previous owners had brought. And I said, good enough for me, and I'm getting the last drop out of them. I don't care if they don't have 25 dials and digital this. I don't care how many other people have these huge, gorgeous, fancy, schmancy. I love my washer and dryer. Coming from apartment, living for 35 years, this is luxury. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much to Chris Koch and Will Ritzrow at SAP. You two really rocked the topic of the circular economy. I'm going to get you back probably January for another part on this. So be thinking about what else we can discuss. Shout out to Aaron, a World Talk radio engineer on the Business Channel. Shout out to Shannon Lester at SAP for introducing me to Chris and Will in this great topic. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? And I only buy used cars, but they're always a Z. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.